I don't know why this is happening, but we've got like two empty rows up the front. If you're feeling so far away up there, Jameses, like if you need to come up the front, like there's some, that'd be great. Um, Neil and Kay are going like We're up to John 13, our series in John. Uh, over, the last, over the last few weeks, John has been slowing down. The timeline is kind of changing in how he's writing. The, the first 11 chapters of John, they're spread out over something like three years. And then those first 11 chapters, they're all kind of focused on, on establishing who this Jesus is within the context of Jewish history. Uh, John's really focused on kind of demonstrating what Jesus is like and pointing toward why he's here and even what it is that he's ultimately going to achieve. That's like the first 11 chapters. Then over the last few weeks, we've looked at chapter 12, but chapter 12 focuses on just one week. And in that one week, you might remember that was, uh, that was where Jesus was anointed by Lazarus's sister Mary with the really expensive perfume. Um, it was where Judas was told that the poor will always be with you. In chapter 12, we saw Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. We also heard Jesus predict his own death. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus has come with the Father's full authority and not to judge the world, but to save it. He is the light and whoever believes in the light will not remain in darkness. And you'll remember that this is key, this is John's key motivation in writing this gospel account, that we might believe and then that in believing that we would have life. So all of, all of this, all of this last 12 chapters in a significant way, they are the setup for the next six Chapters 13 through to 19, they take place over about 24 hours and we hear from Jesus a lot in this next six chapters. And so our setting today is the start of chapter 13, uh, chapter 13 verses 1 to 17 and it is the evening before uh, Jesus' uh, betrayal and, and arrest and, and his execution. So you can... The words will be on the screen or you can read along with me in your Bibles, if you like, reading from the New Living Translation. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. So we've been waiting for this. His hour has 
come. And so this really matters. Up until now, he's been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He did that right back in John 2. He did it twice in John chapter 7. Well, here it is. He knew that his hour had come. He knew that he had authority, that he'd come from God and that he would return to God. And what is the first thing that he does with this knowledge and with this authority? He gets humble and washes feet. This is the first act of the appointed hour. So we had better pay attention to what's going on here. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and and head as well, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what is meant when he said, not all of you are clean. I kind of love John's little sidebars when he just explains what's going on for us. Um, It's interesting, there's no indication here that Jesus did not wash Judas's feet. It's interesting. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So since, since I'm the one you're looking for instruction, then you better pay attention to this. Since, since you are not greater than your teacher, then you're certainly not exempt from this instruction. You ought to wash one another's feet. What a fascinating first lesson of the appointed hour. So let's start by getting clear on the metaphor here. Right from the get-go, right from when this, this Jewish nation was first established after being liberated from Egyptian slavery, we see that the Lord, that Yahweh, had chosen this group of people to, to be set apart, to be his treasured possession, to be a holy nation. And so then throughout this whole story of, of Israel, holiness... And the presence and the favour of God, those things go, go hand in hand. And physical cleanliness was used as a metaphor for holiness, for purity, for righteousness, all the way along. And so sin and, and sinfulness and, and unrighteousness, that was kind of equated with dirt or with being unclean. 
So washing and these purification rituals, they held a really important place in the whole Jewish religious system. They were powerful metaphors for the forgiveness of sin, for holiness, so that the presence and the favour of God might remain with the Israelites. And so this is what set them apart from all other nations. It was the presence of God. And it's this presence, it seems, it was dependent on holiness, on righteousness, on blamelessness, on being clean. And so these washing rituals as symbols of purification, they were really, really well understood. And so in this scene, Jesus is using a very common foot washing ritual to make a point about holiness. This scene is not just about humility. It's not just about serving one another. It is about the forgiveness of sin. This foot washing practice, it was really common in those days and it was actually the custom that you would take a full bath before you're going to somebody's house for a meal. But in walking the dirty streets and you've only got your sandals on, by the time you get there, your feet are going to be grubby. And so a servant of the household would wash your feet, but you would not need to repeat the bath. And so that's what's going on here. And it's interesting that there's an echo here from just one week earlier when Mary washed Jesus' feet with the perfume. Keep in mind too that it is the disciples who are the the object, who are the focus of this lesson. It's for those who have already declared their followership. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet. So this is not a universal lesson. This is a lesson for followers, for disciples. And then he gets to Peter and and the inference is that he has already been washing the feet of some of the other disciples. And he gets to Peter and Peter is like, no way. No way are you washing my feet. I'll wash my own feet thank you. Or rather, don't demean yourself, Jesus. This is a servant's job and you're better than that. I love Peter, but this is mistake number one. Jesus says, unless I wash you, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. You're not going to understand this right now, Peter, but soon you're going to. Unless I wash you, unless I make you clean, you have no share with me. You have no part with me, the NIV says. You won't participate in me. If I don't purify purify you, you won't be included in my body. Unless I wash you, unless I forgive you, and unless I purify you, justify you, clean you, you won't belong to me. Peter says, then wash all of me. Wash my head, wash my, wash my hands, wash my feet as well. And I totally get where he's coming from, but this is, this is his second mistake. Jesus replies, and this is kind of weird. A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean except for Judas, 
That's a whole other topic that we're not going to look at today. You disciples are clean. You've had a bath. The, the ESV does a good job of this and it says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. You are clean because I've already cleaned you. I've washed you, bathed you. I've forgiven you. You had a bath before you came. You're clean. As far as Jesus is concerned, you, you disciples, you are totally and you are completely clean. Holy, pure, justified, righteous, blameless. A person who is bathed all over does not need to wash. You are completely clean. Nothing held against you. Sin, totally dealt with. Forgiven. You might be thinking, well, hang on. Jesus hasn't been to the cross yet. How can the disciples already been forgiven, made holy? Where, where's the blood sacrifice? Isn't, isn't that the thing? There is always a sacrificial cost to forgiveness. And that's true. But the idea that God can't legally forgive without receiving some payment, some penalty, some compensation, is the result of some very popular but some very problematic theology. And it can really confuse the idea of forgiveness. The disciples are clean. They are forgiven. They are made holy simply because the Son, the living and the eternal word, declared them so. You disciples are clean. Later that night, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. They're clean because he said so. The disciples were not clean because of anything they did. No self-bathing can get us there. They're not there. They're, they're not clean because uh, they, they said some magic prayer. There's no evidence of that. And as a matter of fact, they're not even made clean by the cross. Hasn't even happened yet. But because of the word spoken by Christ. And this might mess with you a little bit. Forgiveness for sin was achieved when Christ, the Son of God, when the word of God, when God spoke it. In the same way that the eternal son spoke creation into existence and said, let there be light and there was light, he now speaks, you are clean. And so you are clean. It's a done deal. And soon this declaration of forgiveness is going to spread far beyond the upper room. In the next 24 hours, we will see Jesus' betrayal. We will see his trial. We will see his execution. And as humanity perpetrates its greatest rebellion, falsely trying and executing its creator, the son declares forgiveness. While the son was being nailed to and while he was being lifted up on the cross, the maker of trees hanging on one, he prays to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This was not wishful thinking. This was not baseless hope. 
This was not some rare moment of weakness or even some separation between father and son. That is silly theology. This was a declaration from the one to whom all authority has been given. This was spoken by the one who only speaks what the father has given him to say. And at the climax of human rebellion and in full agreement with the father, forgiveness rings out across the cosmos. And if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. Completely free. Completely clean. And that includes you and not because of anything that you've done. Not because of anything that you've asked for. Not because of anything you've earned, but solely because the son declared it in agreement with the Father. He has washed you clean. In Christ, God has reconciled the cosmos to himself. What's this about feet then? A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples, you are clean. So yes, there are two different words here, bathe and wash, and they do mean exactly kind of what we we think that they mean. And so if the son has done the bathing once and for all, taken away the sins of the world, John the Baptist says, if sin is dealt with and we are already totally clean, then why do we need a wash? If Jesus has comprehensively dealt with sin in, in, in agreement with the Father, all things reconciled to him, what's left to wash off? Is God still holding something against us? Was Jesus' declaration not enough after all? Is there still some lingering sin that we're not forgiven for? Some salvation fine print? That we're not aware of. Do we need a new bath after each new sin? Because we're stuffed if that's true. No. We are fully and eternally embraced as God's own children in Christ. His righteousness is ours forever. Full stop. The issue is not what God still holds against us. Rather, what we hold against ourselves and one another. There is an accumulation of brokenness in life that although it does not alter our status as children and heirs of the king, it does get in the way of our fellowship. It gets in the way of our our fellowship enough to stop us coming to the table together. And it turns out that this is a very serious matter indeed. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. This is not about Jesus washing our feet because he needs to deal with some post-salvation sin. This is Jesus washing his disciples' feet because he's teaching them a lesson, something to emulate, something to, to replicate. And you've got to keep in mind, this is a metaphor. We're talking about dealing with sin, not just dirty feet. 
This is not Jesus having to deal with, with ongoing sin so that we are okay with him. It's about us dealing with one another's sin so that we remain unified in his body. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Wash one another's feet. Take the lowly, humble position of a servant. Take the basin and the towel. Get over your pride and deal with your brother and your sister's sin with the same attitude of forgiveness that Christ has forgiven you. Don't wait for them to wash themselves. Don't wait for them to sort themselves out. That's not the example here. Don't wait for them to confess their sins. That's not what Jesus did here. Don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness or even to repent. Don't make your forgiveness conditional on payment or compensation or sacrifice. It's not the example. While they are still sinners, you are to forgive. Wash their feet so that we might remain in fellowship, united, one body around the table together. The eternal relationship between God and you and God and me, it's sorted. It is reconciled in Christ. But the dirt of sin and brokenness gets in the way of our fellowship, of our fellowship with him, with ourselves and with one another as his body. The dirt of the road accumulates on the feet of the clean. But the remedy is not to make ourselves clean, nor is it even to go back and ask Christ for another bath. Significantly, this is a matter to be dealt with as the body, to love one another as he first loved us. Wash your brother's feet. Wash your sister's feet. Forgive as you have been forgiven. This is how the world will know that we are his disciples, that we are different. And this is why we are different. In the order of love, in the order of forgiveness demonstrated by Christ, The forgiver pays the price. The forgiver washes the feet of the offender. That's the sacrifice here. You imagine Jesus washing Judas's feet. There's no reason to think he didn't. The one with dirty feet isn't cleaning themselves and the one cleaning isn't waiting for an invitation But the one having their feet washed, a disciple, remember, part of the body, just like Peter, if they're to remain in union, if they are to remain apart, has an obligation to receive. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Forgive one another in a manner that resembles Christ. The forgiver pays the price. That is the whole point. Jesus is not demanding that you pay for your own sins. No wonder the religious elite wanted to kill him. Jesus told them in Matthew 9, and he was quoting the prophet Hosea when he did this. He said to the religious leaders, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not a trade, not a payment, not a fine, not religion, not, not sacrifice, but mercy. Self-sacrificial, self-emptying love for the other. Mercy. He has done it for you. 
He has cleansed you, has made you new. You are a new creation while you are still a sinner. He did not wait for you to say, I'm sorry. He did not wait to you confess, for you to confess and repent your sins. And sure, this is the correct and this is the necessary response when we come to grips with what he has already done. But he forgave us 2,000 years ago while we were still sinners. And in the same way, we forgive one another regardless of their confession or their repentance or, or their remorse. Why? Because that's the example. The forgiver pays the price. And so it's, yes, it is Jesus who does the bathing, but it's you and I, it's one another that do the washing, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Did you know these these directives about each other, about one another, there's a hundred of these in the New Testament and half of them are directed at believers to, to the body of Christ so that we might live in a way that bears witness to him. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble with one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another. Patiently tolerate one another. Don't complain about one another. Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another. Greet one another with a kiss. Give preference to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't judge one another. Speak truth to one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another and on and on it goes. And this one, forgive one another, that's the top of the pops. And we have a serious problem, it seems, if we don't wash one another's feet. To refuse to forgive one another is to grieve the Holy Spirit. This is Paul in Ephesians 4, and this, let, this letter is to the church, remember. And he writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's the discord within the body of believers. It's the bitterness and the malice and the slander between brothers and sisters that grieves the Holy Spirit. And forgiveness, kind and compassionate reconciliation is the remedy and it is not to be withheld. To refuse this reconciliation is to betray God's gift of forgiveness at the most fundamental level this is a directive forgive one another just as in christ god forgave you do not grieve the holy spirit when jesus taught his followers how to pray in the sermon on the mount he prays forgive us our sins as we Forgive those who sin against us. And he finishes the prayer. And no sooner has he finished the prayer, but he circles back to forgiveness and puts this great big thick red underline underneath it. And he says, 
If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. To live in unforgiveness, refusing to wash our brothers and our sisters' feet is to betray the Spirit of God within us. The Spirit of God in Christ who paid the price, who knowingly gave up his life in forgiveness of you and forgiveness of me, it is grieved when we, the ones who dare call ourselves his disciples, withhold forgiveness toward a brother or a sister. In no circumstance do we image him less faithfully than when we dig our heels in in unforgiveness. To refuse to forgive your brother and sister in Christ is unforgivable, not unforgivable just because it's so offensive, but unforgivable because the power and the responsibility to forgive one another has been placed in our hands. It's been delegated to the body. You and I, we have the spiritual authority and we have the spiritual responsibility to forgive one another. After the, the, the resurrection, uh, in John 20, we read it in Matthew 2. Um, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks' time. Jesus appears to the disciples and he floats through doors and walls and cool stuff like that. And he says, settle down, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Isn't that interesting that that is the very first component of his spirit-infused commission, giving you authority to forgive? Reconciliation with and forgiveness within the body of Christ among us has been delegated to us. We are to wash one another's feet. You and I are to, to carry the cross of forgiveness for our friends. There is no greater love than this. And so this is our task, to wash one another's feet, to forgive as we have been forgiven, to love as we have been loved, and all the world will know that we are his disciples. And it seems pretty black and white. Jesus says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Forgive and be blessed. Don't forgive and neither will you be forgiven. It's clear and it's hard. Because to love our brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ loves us, it is the way of the basin and the towel. It is the way of the cross. The forgiver pays the price. And I ask the band if you would mind coming up. I'm not going to tie anything up in a neat bow. And I'm not going to pray, rather I'm going to invite you to pray. And as you do that, we're going to show a, a series of prints from an Australian artist, a Kiwi living in Western Australia called Salt and Gold. And this is her foot washing series and it's just beautiful. 
And I'm going to ask that as these images cycle through, that you would pray, that you would invite that the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart. If you need to get on the ground and pray, then do that. If you need to stand up and pray, you do that. If you need to pray out loud, you do that. If you need to pray with and for people around you, then you do that. Give thanks to the one who has declared you clean. And in response, forgive that person, forgive that friend, the partner, the parent, the boss, the colleague, whoever it is that still has a stronghold in your heart. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Because this would change the world. And in a few minutes, the band will lead us in a final song.